here we are, the Christ-like life of Lahiri Mahashaya. Does anybody have any comments or thoughts or questions about anything before we start in on this new chapter? Anything from last week or from this one? I guess last week we did half of it on the bombing of the World Trade Centers, which is now not quite so much on our minds. I hope. Okay. Um, Master starts this whole, you know, you read this autobiography so many times and you don't remember everything that's in it, even if you read it a lot of times. This whole chapter, this whole beginning part about John the Baptist and Jesus and the whole Elijah and Elisha, it's just such a story. I mean, eventually I think the Christians are going to get real mad at us. Right now we're so busy being persecuted by our own guru bhais that we don't really have time to be persecuted by the Christians. But in fact, Master himself said that. Master said there will be a time when SRF, when self-realization will be very strongly persecuted. He said, quite frankly, especially by the Catholics. Right, and Swamiji, that's why it took Swami a few years to realize we were being persecuted by the, our guru bhais. Because he always expected to be persecuted by somebody else. Swamiji expressed it by saying that right now, self-realization is just figuring itself out. You know, we really have two very rival, uh, self-contradictory points of view between SRF and Ananda in terms of what Master's teaching actually is. I mean, really very different points of view. So there's not really a clear target that you can call self-realization yet. And when this, uh, Swami just was just speculating on that, when this dynamic of this conflict is resolved and the course of Master's mission is more clear-cut, which will be in a short time, in a long time, I don't know. And that's when the power of it will really develop, and then um, the people who it really threatens will be able to see what it really is. Because <laughs> just even the whole um, emphasis, I mean, there's so many things in this simple statement. The mere fact, I mean, quite apart from the whole uh, assertion that John the Baptist was Jesus' guru, the mere concept that Jesus would have a guru is just so out of whack with what Christianity teaches. And in fact, the, um, the whole lost years of, of Jesus, according to Yogananda and other masters, were actually the years in which Christ went back and studied in India. And uh, you know, as Yogananda put it, just really simply, that the three wise men were Lahiri, um, Sri Yukteswar, and Babaji, and they came from India to do homage. And then when Jesus came of age, he went to India and studied yoga in the Himalayas with the masters. There's, certain, um, there's a film that East-West Cells rents called The Lost Years of Jesus, which was made by a, a, an acquaintance of Ananda. And Swami Kriyananda appears in there also. And it's very interesting. The film itself kind of gallops off and you end up dealing with Hitler's spear of destiny and things like that. But until it kind of gets really out there, it's a very interesting story. And it puts forth all the different evidence there is. I mean, there's traditions in India and in Tibet of this great yogi who came and then went back. And then the legends of what happened to him when he went back to his own country. And it's, it's just widely assumed it's the story of Jesus. And Yogananda said unequivocally that it is, that he just went to India. But the reason those years were taken out of the Bible according to the tradition that Yogananda describes, and they were taken out some hundreds of years later, 
was because when they were sort of getting Jesus organized for the church, they had a certain picture they wanted to put forward of him. And the idea that he had to go off and study to learn something didn't really fit with the theology as they were creating it. And the theology as they were creating it was he was the son of God and they were making that very literal and not symbolic as he really meant it. And as the son of God, why would he have had to study? And Yogananda tells that um, there were those at the time who said, look, the direct disciples knew that he went to India and it was fine with them. You know, why can it not be fine with us? But those saner voices didn't win. And so there's the whole period where he grew up, you know, he was 13, I guess, or whatever, 12, and then he was 30. And there was just nothing in between. And as Swami comments on it, they had the nerve to remove, but nobody had the nerve to really create a whole new life for him. Swamiji says, if it were true, at least, I mean, one of the, the, the disciples would have said, and he grew up and worked in his father's shop. You know, they would have said something. But the, he was a, it was a short life, and the, these were his chroniclers, and not one of them says anything about it, which speaks strongly to it being removed. Yes? I think so. Does anyone know that? I believe that some of those discovered scrolls refer to his travels, but I'm not certain of that. It will come out. But you know, saints, saints come and they have direct revelation and then they tell you what's true. So Yogananda has come and has, has by direct revelation, by an intuitive reading, how does he call it? Anyway, but he, he says something about here, from an oriental viewpoint, from a reverent study of the Bible, from an oriental viewpoint, and from intuitive perception, I am convinced, is what he says. In other words, he can tell directly. He knows directly what the story is. And as time goes by, saints come, and from direct intuitive perception, they tell us things that we didn't know before. So a great deal of the autobiography is about the Bible, the New Testament, because it was the will of Babaji and of Christ you know, we say every week in the Festival of Light, Jesus appeared to the great master Babaji and said something needs to be done about this poor Western folk. Poor Western folk. Poor Western, whatever I said, poor Western folk because they're taking really good care of the homeless but they're not taking good care of their souls because they've gotten really mixed up, right? And something has to be done about it. So that whole process resulted in a master coming to the West. And he came to the West to teach the New Testament, the Bhagavad Gita, he called it all religions, but that's really all he taught because that they, they contain the essence of all religions. But he, what he taught about Jesus is not really at all what they taught about Jesus, what the Christians teach about Jesus, so-called Christians, what the churches teach about Jesus. So Master, um, just presenting the whole picture that Jesus was a yogi and therefore had a guru, and therefore did sadhana, and therefore had, you know, came to his own state of realization, and therefore initiated his disciples and taught them what his masters had taught him. It's just not the same picture at all. Were you going to say something? Well, I was going to ask you, Swami ever commented, uh, as Yogananda said, that Christ was teaching his disciples something very close to Korea. I, it, and I'm just, I just, it seems almost like like it just vanished. There's no reference to it. There's nothing. You wonder how it was just totally killed. Well, you know what's what's in the Bible is the, is the there's places in the Bible like even the Beatitudes. Jesus took his disciples apart uh, 
away from the crowd and taught them. But in a sense, Kriya is not taught in the autobiography either. You know, it's not, it's not taught in that which is meant for the public. But the fact that the, um, that St. Paul could say, I die daily. I mean, that, that there's veiled references to it and the book of Revelations, which I, of course I can't understand, but Master has written an interpretation of it and he says the book of Revelations is yoga. And it's all about the chakras and the kundalini and the spiritual eye and the little bit of his interpretation that has been released that people have read. It's, the master just says, well, you know, he just draws an exact parallel. So St. John did. He just taught yoga, but he taught it in a very covered up form because where was Kriya until the Hari Mahashaya? Kriya was in the Himalayas and it was only for those who were willing to renounce everything. So all the more so Kali Yuga descending, it just simply would not be disseminated. But I'm sure the disciples had it and taught others. And that's where their power came from. That's where Paul's power came from. Paul started Christianity. I mean, he went all over preaching. And, and I mean, think about it like this. Paul came. Paul himself had never met Christ. He had a vision of Christ, so he saw Christ. But he'd never, he hadn't lived with Christ. He had had him, in, saw him in a vision. Then he came out to, you know, these... I, I always say this to you, but it's very important. Just imagine it happening just like right now. You know, like Paul we, Paul shows up at East West Bookstore, right? I mean, with a lot of power. And he's telling us, you know, or more likely he goes and speaks at the, the First Congregational Church or, or Temple Beth Israel or something like that. And everybody's coming together and he stands up and he says, you know, there was this great man who lived and, and he taught these astonishing teachings and he took our scriptures and this is how he interpreted them. Just exactly the same way I'm holding this up and saying now in the, in the New Testament it says, thus and so happened, but, but, and, and I know that you all think it means this, but it actually means something else. So Paul stood there with the scriptures because he was a learned Jew and he was talking to the Jews and he says, now this is what the priests have been telling it. it said, but this rabbi, Jesus, came, now he said something different. And furthermore, he said to do this, and he said to do this, and, and then uh, Paul would stand up there with this tremendous power and say, and he was crucified on the cross, and after the third day he rose from the dead. People would say, how do you know that? He'd say, well, I talked to those who saw him, you know, and he rose, raised, raised Lazarus from the dead, and I've talked to Lazarus. Oh, come on, some will say. But others will feel something, you know, just they'll feel something from Paul that is really the presence of Christ coming through him. And they'll feel it from Paul because of Paul's powerful conviction and because he was doing something. He had a practice that enabled him to experience it. But that wouldn't be enough. Paul would have to somehow be able to transfer to the people that he was talking to the power to have that same experience. And how else would he do that except by teaching them the way to have the experience themselves. But in that setting, Kali Yuga descending, how many people would he teach and how public would he be about it? You know, even here, as public as we are, you have to do many things before you receive Kriya initiation. At least we advertise that's what we teach. But there, where it was blasphemous to um, consider yourself worthy or capable of direct communion with God, he would have to be even more careful about it. But because of the power they had, the disciples had, and because of veiled things they said and things that John wrote in Revelations, and because Yogananda says so. 
because he was a true master. You can also just say simply because he was an avatar, he would have had to teach something like that because how do you get from delusion to freedom? You reverse the, the flow of the energy in the spine. Whereas the energy flows downward and out into matter to get back to freedom, you pull the energy back up the spine and go through the spiritual eye. And it doesn't matter who you are, that's what you have to do. That's all Kriya is. Kriya is just a very simple, systematic method for reversing the flow of energy, withdrawing it and reversing it and raising it. I mean, it's, it's not more mysterious than that. That's why you, know, you finally learn Kriya and you think, hmm. <laughs> but, but when you start doing Kriya, then you start realizing that this really, this is really a revolution because it reverses the flow. And that's simply what there is, is that you reverse the flow. So, uh, Paul was uh, quite controversial, you know, and was eventually beheaded for going around and doing that because they just, people couldn't stand it. They just couldn't stand that he was taking it down, teaching them something that they had a huge, they had a huge system in place. Just a moment, Richard. They, I mean, they had a huge system in place, all of these Jews. started out just being Jews. Paul couldn't get anywhere with the Jews. They were just too fixed. So he went out to the Gentiles. And what he, cre- he really created it among the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles had no position at all. The Jews had a very strong, fixed position about this renegade Jew. Because that's who Jesus was. I mean, the Jews, uh, the priests of the temples are the ones who crucified him. Because he was just way too out there for what they were doing. And they never really did accept him, and that's why Judaism shrank and, you know, became became a sect, sect thing. So Paul said, look, I'm not going to just hammer my head against you stiff-necked people. He said, I'm going to go find somebody who cares. And so then he went around to people who just were just living their lives, and he came and he said, you know, I have a, um, a profound revelation to offer you. And he, he, he had all this power. How, how else would they have believed it? You know, it's fascinating to really contemplate would have made them, what would have made them believe it. He wrote them lots of letters, only some of which are saved. But he explained to them how it worked. He must have given them something to do because then he went on. And it, and it, and it held. So it, there must have been people there who were able to grasp it and do something themselves and then transmit it because that's how it always works. And then the uh, Jerusalem uh, Christians went along behind him and tried to tell people that, that his initiations wouldn't really work. I love that. Does that sound familiar? And they wouldn't work because they weren't following the Jewish law. They couldn't really do it. It was Judaism and they weren't following all that they had to convert. That's why in the Bible there's all these discussions about whether you have to be circumcised to be saved. These are Paul's letters, these intense conversations about whether or not Jesus' salvation applies to you if you're not circumcised. And you think... This is a weird conversation. But the conversation was whether you could be a Christian without being a Jew. Because he originally, when they went out to teach Jesus' teaching, they were converting people to Judaism, and you had to, you had to take the whole thing. You had to not just take the new revelation, but you also had to become Jewish because it was a revelation for the chosen people. And then Paul said, no, I don't really actually think that's the way it is. I think you can just, this is the good news. You don't have to take the old story. You can just take the new story. And that uh, was not popular. It was not popular at all. So it was very, you know, it was very uh, tough. And they all got, um, eventually, except for John, I believe they were all martyred by the end. Because it was just... But, but the, a new teaching is always based on the blood of the martyrs. We hope in the Dwapar Yuga sending it's a milder form of martyrdom. But I don't know. 
You know, there's always this requirement. The world just doesn't sort of say, ah, a new revelation. Let us abandon all our old ways and just embrace a new way. That's just not quite how it works. People are invested in what they've got. I was even thinking, and I'll finish this thought, and I know I haven't forgotten you raised your hand, Richard, but but uh, right even as we speak, and forgive me for always talking about SRF, but it, it's so illustrative of what we're dealing with, I have to keep talking about it, for only, only because it's very important. You know, I'm so, I'm so steeped in it, but I'm not steeped in it just to be oppositional, I'm steeped in it because it's very instructive. You know, SRF, the individuals leading it, started molding it to match their own preferences, which is, of course, what everybody does. That's why the avatars have to keep coming. Swami writes in a place called Ananda that the, the essential core leadership, with the exception of him, which is why he's not in it anymore, were very institutional religion-oriented. And they, they just started making, they thought, well, here we are, we have responsibility for this great mission, and they looked around and they just started making it in the form that they were used to where the organization and the institution is part of it. And they just heard masters say things that sounded to them like they were supposed to make a big church. And then they just started trying to figure out how you would take this big teaching and make it work. And what, But unfortunately what they've done here is that, they, that where, where, when master did things that fell outside the parameters of the little box, they just cut him to fit inside the box so that he would fit. I mean, even just Swami uses the example of when Master was alive, people took Kriya initiation as often as they wanted to, the same as we do. You know, sometimes we have ceremonies just for Kriya bonds, but any, Kriya, any person who's had Kriya can go to a Kriya ceremony and take the whole ceremony and receive the blessing and make your offering just as if you'd never been there before. Believe it or not, the SRF practice is once you take it, you never can take it again. You can witness the ceremony, you can even make your offering, but you can never be initiated again. And that's because they decided that Kriya was like being baptized in the church. It was the baptism. And once you're baptized, you can only be baptized once. So, you know, they just took the parts and they just cut it off. I'm saying this because that's just what the Christians did with Jesus. They, they sort of started making this story and they started building an edifice and their power and influence over people was dependent upon the things that they had built. And so they had to just kind of cut out the parts that didn't work. And it's very natural, it happens very easily. It's not a good thing, but nonetheless, it's, it just, that's the way it goes. That's exactly what's happened here. And the whole business of reincarnation is really all through the Bible. In Jesus' own words, who do you think John the Baptist was? And then people guess. I mean, that's what's in the Bible. They guess, who was he? And they guess previous prophets. Now, if there was, if there was what could be more clear except that that's just a very simple statement that they all understood that reincarnation happened and that John was somebody before and they tried to guess who he was and then Jesus himself says Elijah has come but you knew him not because the, because the, the Old Testament ends with this promise that Elijah is going to come back again this is a continuous story and there's the scene between Elijah and Elisha and Elisha asks for Elijah's mantle just as his master's telling it there and Elijah says well I'll give it to you but only if you can see me as I ascend, which is to say if your consciousness is expanded enough. And, and then you have this mysterious thing where Elijah diminishes himself temporarily in order to raise Elisha. And so Elisha becomes Jesus. He becomes this great saint. But 
Elijah's temporarily a little smaller because he poured it all out. I said to Swami, what a confusing twist of fate. Swami just kind of, Swami's answer, Swami's response was, you know, an eloquent shrugging his shoulders. He had no answer. I asked him these questions at the breakfast table once. And he just went, raised his arm, shrugged his shoulders. He didn't have an answer either. I said, it's just such a confusing twist of the plot. He said, yeah, but there it is. What can we say? What, what, what it really is, that is the way it happened. But, the, but how could they handle that? You know, it just didn't fit with the neat Catholic package. They just, if people can rise and fall and be re- reincarnated again and somebody can be Jesus' guru, you know, we need, we need this clear. We need the Son of God who was just done and that was that and we've got him and that's it. This, all this business of uh, what Master says also, the discussion about reincarnation was the thought that if people thought they had too many lifetimes, they wouldn't try hard enough. They wouldn't try hard enough. So again, it was the same argument, but it worked for the disciples. Don't ask me. Maybe they wouldn't. I, I'm sure, more truly, they wouldn't be devoted enough to the church. They wouldn't give enough money to the church. They wouldn't feel obligated to relate to the church. If you thought about having all these previous incarnations, what do you need this organization right here for? You know, what authority does this church have over me if I've incarnated many times before and will incarnate again? It all comes down. Every change that SRF has made, which is illustrative, is always to make themselves more required in the equation. Like even now, it's like they have, SRF has set up a whole system where the, the board of directors has received all these secret instructions from Yogananda. And you can never quite be sure what's true because it may look like Yogananda did this whole thing his whole life and everything he ever wrote and said affirms it, but you don't know whether he gave secret instructions to those, that, those board members. So you can never be certain of anything until you've confirmed it with them. And of course, those secret instructions are secret. So they're the only ones who can say yes or no. I mean, issues of, of Krishna not being on the altar, the whole explanation that SRF gives, they, they claim, which is also false, that Yogananda put Krishna on the altar in the, at the Encinitas Golden Temple back in 1920-something or 30-something. And then he never put Krishna on the altar again, ever. He didn't actually put Krishna on the altar then, but that's a different story. He never put Krishna on the altar ever again. So many people, they, SRF writes, thought that this was his actual policy. A natural mistake to make. But they didn't realize that he'd left secret instructions that when the time was right, Krishna should be put on the altar. <laughs> but don't underestimate the power of spiritual authority, right? Because even as I read that, you know, John the Baptist was this and so on, you know, there's just a little part of you that wants to say, how does he know? You know, this isn't what the church has told me all this time. When I first started reading the Christian, the Christian teachings as Yogananda taught, and I wasn't even raised Christian, I was raised Jewish. A piece of me, I just was really immersed in Master's commentary on the Bible and the old magazine articles, the unedited version, just Christ consciousness, Son of God, you know, Jesus and John the Baptist, the guru, and going to India. And it was just like, just for a minute, I thought, how does he know? You know, how could he have all this so true when everybody else says differently? And all, I didn't have any reason to think he was wrong either. It was just that everybody else says differently. And so there's this constant challenge in self-realization when you get into relationship with the master. If Do I really believe? 
And on what basis do I believe? And what faith do I have in the radicalness of what he's telling me? It's, it's not easy at all. And we should have an honest respect for our own um, process of coming to understand this. It's very, very interesting. Yes, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happened is what, what, what's actually happening is that SRF holds no copyrights on anything that Master himself wrote. And, and I'm phrasing it differently because I only two days ago woke up and said, SRF holds no copyrights on anything that Master himself wrote. They hold no copyrights on his pictures. They hold no copyrights on his tape. They have physical possession of a great deal. And they can also file lawsuits trying to establish their copyrights, which this 11-year lawsuit has been an attempt to establish a copyright. They failed. But no one knows they failed because we haven't published all this stuff. Even on our website, we did an article here, an article there. Well, we're going to put it all out now. We're going to put it all on the website. Every, every possible thing we can get our hands on, we're just going to put it up on the web. And, and hopefully publish it in paper form. Because the world needs to realize that this is free. Everybody has this now. So yeah, funny you should ask. There's a great deal of stuff that's been already decided is free. Now, I have nobody's approval. I have to get somebody else's approval besides just mine. No, there's a huge amount of stuff that is absolutely free and clear. There's no issue. And then there's a certain amount that isn't. We won't publish anything that they could still take us to court to try to establish. We'll only publish that which we know, which is gigantic. A heck of a lot more than we put out already. Fabulous. Huge amount more. We've just been too busy to think about it. Just, and we, you know, we parsed it out on the website with a little article, a little article, a paragraph. And I said, what are we doing? That's why I said this last night or night before. What are we doing? Let's just scan the whole stuff in. It's like the museum. You go into the museum and there are just copies of the, uh, of the lessons. And remember, you know, in the yeah. museum, that one yeah. section where they have all the booklets from the 1920 yeah. lessons. I'm wondering, why don't we just put, you've got the book, put it up on the web. That's a good I question. Mean, there's a lot of books there. Well, but Yogananda's back. own voice is startling. It's very, it's startling. Yogananda's own voice is startling. Yeah, and, and we have a whole system now of institutional authority. And even uh, there's a persona of Yogananda, which is very hard. It's not, the way, you know, it's very definite. You know, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. This is what we do, this is what we don't do. And you just, did I mention about Wallace Simpson? Did I mention that in this class? But, but the master defended Wallace Simpson. She was the, the, the American divorcee that caused the King of England to abdicate. This was told to me by a friend of mine who read a, a contemporaneous magazine article. Apparently she was being vilified in the press, of course, because of everything, because she was twice divorced. My friend told me that Master said, you see, her first two, Master had a very cavalier attitude toward marriage. It's not true marriage unless it's soul, unless it's soul love. Otherwise it doesn't count. You see, he said, her first two marriages were not real marriages because it wasn't a soul union. She held out for the true thing. She should be held up as a hero to all Americans. American girls should use her as an example. Now that is very controversial. But that's the kind of... Mm -hmm. Anyway, so he said...
what really happened. Mm-hmm. There it is. So, back to John the Baptist and Jesus. And um, also what's so touching, what I do love about this also, is the fact that Christianity is so important. There's, there's this just profound and continuous respect for Jesus throughout everything that Yogananda writes. You know, it's not, and it's not just a small respect, it's this real, it's this real sense of partnership with Christ, which is very, it's very nice because it's a, it's a very respectful continuation of the tradition, once we can get our minds sort of turned around to realize what the tradition really is. But uh, when Master talks repeatedly, in, earlier in this book, when he talks about the, the, um, the, the chalice appearing, and Jesus drinking from it and giving it to Yogananda. Maybe it's not in this book, maybe it's in Swami's book, but that which I drink, the cup that you drink from, I, that I drink from, you shall drink from also. And so Jesus, uh, Yogananda just came to really teach us, give us an understanding of this wonderful teaching that we already have. And, and he talks about John the Baptist, you know, in here coming and prophesying, and it's just so... When you remember again, this book was called The Yogi Christ of India. You know, it's such an exciting story. And, and it, it captures the imagination. And, and so much about Christ's life. I mean, some of us have, have, some Americans, some Westerners, have tuned into it and just really revel in it. But it's really a story worth reveling in. You know, it's a remarkable story. And it's our story. It's the story of our own soul. And we can sort of watch... Uh, these things that Jesus did, and really realize those are those are our actions, those are our attitudes, those are that's our future that we're watching, and it's um, it's just wonderful in that way. So, so then he he also uses this, you know, he uses the illustration Master does of uh, uh, John and Jesus to give us sort of a feeling for this relationship between Lahiri Mahashaya and Babaji which we've read in the previous chapter, but the way that Babaji called him up to the mountain and took care of him so beautifully and then reinitiated him and sent him off to do his message. It also, because our own life, all of us, our lives are lives of discipleship. At a certain point when we um, reach our, uh, our level of true spiritual sincerity, we're also drawn into this relationship of master and disciple. So Swam, uh, Master really wants us to understand it when he says, my, uh, Babaji says <clears throat> to Lahiri, my son, I shall come whenever you need me. And then Master says, what mortal lover can bestow that infinite promise? And you know, Master's going right to the heart of all of our desires and our delusions and all of our hopes that something in this world is really going to be able to satisfy us and we build these little fortresses of human security. And then Master just cuts right across it. And first by the, the story that began at the beginning with all this about Elijah and Elisha and John and Jesus and this incredible um, complexity of divine relationship. And then we have the story of Lahiri and Babaji and we, we just get this picture in our mind of the kind of love and friendship um, that we're really looking for. And, and it inspires us also to sort of weigh 
um, the experiences of this life by a much higher standard, to measure them by a much higher standard, to, to understand what the real potential of, of love is and, and try to live up to it within ourselves. Well, so it's not really um, emphasized in here, but Swamiji also talks about this in other places, and it's, it's worth noting. He said, we cannot presume on the master's relationship. This is a fine line. We have to earn it. We have to, we have to actually receive that. We can't just sort of sign up and think we have it. Uh, Swamiji and his comment on the Bible, the commentaries on the Bible, devotes a great deal to this sort of saying, I call myself saved, and then Jesus is obligated to save me. He said, you know, it has to be also that we have to rise to it and, and live by the standard that the masters ask of us. Now, it's a fine line because it isn't as if we have to exactly earn the master's love, but we have to, we have to reciprocate in kind for them to be able to reach us is more what it comes down to. If we don't raise our vibration to match their vibration, they can't get through to us. They're vibrating all around us and we don't know it. So we have this uh, obedience that Lahiri Mahashaya's life was so obedient. You know, he, he saw his master in the Himalayas and what did this world matter to him? It was just a dim memory. What, what, what all that struggle? And yet he went back and worked, was it 25 or 35 years in the same government department? You know, on a modest pension. He lived frugally. He had a small salary. He lived frugally. He sort of made his, his money last. He, he, he helped start a high school. He did all these little things just sort of living a very regular-looking life. For what possible reason? What did it mean to him? It meant nothing to him. But he did it because his guru said, this is your, this is your job assignment. And here he was so surrendered and so willing to do what his master said that then he just went and did it entirely and only because it's where God had put him and that's what he, he'd asked himself to do. He, he, he wanted to do. It's very... You know, Lahiri's um, time is right now, the birthday and the Mahasamadhi are these four days of time. We've often talked, it's inconvenient for other reasons, but this would be the ideal time to have the Kriyabhan retreat every year. And, and someday maybe we can turn it. Because just to have it right around the Lahiri cycle would be just exactly the right time to have it. But uh, Lahiri's life is such an example of, uh, of, of ordinariness made divine by his conscious surrender to it and by his, his conscious relationship with Babaji. Because sort of all of us are called to these much more ordinary looking lives. You know, we just don't have the freedom to drop everything and live in that cave. We just have such, we have such mundane stuff to take care of. And every so often when I'm feeling just utterly rebellious about it, I just sometimes just get so tired of just taking out the trash and cooking lunch and going grocery shopping and just hours a day just spent doing nothing except just moving stuff from one place to the next. I always think of Lahiri going all those years as a government accountant. You just can hardly think of a job on one level that could be more deadly. And just every day he would just go and do it, you know, and he wasn't complaining that he needed more creative work. 
Yeah, he just he just did, did it with God and for God because it was asked of him. Well, he could have had, but maybe that's our solution too, huh? Maybe he did sufficient Kriya so it didn't matter. I mean, I, I understand, but it's such a peculiar life. Really, on a certain level, it's such a peculiar life. It just doesn't accept for that great moment when he was 33 and he went up there and was uh, met Babaji. The rest of it was acted out on such a mundane stage. Now, of course, it was anything but mundane. We have the previous story of his wife challenging him and his, you know, materializing on the ceiling and being surrounded by angels. And, you know, so it was anything but mundane. And then after he retired, he spent day and night in that room. He seldom left it even to walk to other parts of the house. I mean, that's, that's uh, not ordinary by any standard. I mean, extraordinary, but still, it just was in this little, tucked in this little corner of Varanasi. And it's so fabulous at the beginning, especially. It, it did say, I sort of missed this before, that by the end, he did let them start that little organization in Calcutta. But, but for all those years, he, he never, as I said earlier, he never even let the disciples speak to each other. How did the word spread? You know? But I, I know from just our, my own life experience. There's just, somebody hears about it and tells somebody. You know, you must come. I met this man in Varanasi. He's so inspiring. Just like, well, like uh, Yogananda's own father. His employee says, I would like leave to go visit my guru. Oh, you shouldn't be spending so much time on that. And then Lahiri materializes in the wheat field. And Yogananda's father said, maybe I'll go check this out. <laughs> no. And maybe it wasn't so miraculous for each one, but somebody will say, well, you know, where were you last night? Or why can't you come with me now because you have to go where? Well, maybe I'll go see too. And then, and then those people who have the consciousness to receive, and that's what I was saying about being disciples, you know, to just declare that you're a disciple, you have to also receive the vibration. Now, I'm not saying that, that you haven't, so don't become paranoid about this. But, but you can see there were many, many people in Varanasi, but not all of them heard about Lahiri. And not all those who heard about Lahiri had the capacity to intuitively understand this was something they ought to do. And it wasn't by any means a mass movement. Swamiji says they talked about Lahiri's Gita classes on the balcony. And Swamiji said the balcony was very small, 10, maybe 15 people. You know, you think of a world movement looking really huge, but it doesn't necessarily because for 10 righteous men, you know, the Lord would have spared the city of Sodom or Gomorrah, right? Because that many people, could, just a few have that power. Swami tells an interesting story in, uh, I think it's Siena, where there's this host, this uh, uh, holy wafer that, uh, let me see if I have this correct. Yeah, I think this is the the never never decaying holy wafer. Were you went there, Joe, when we saw that? Yeah, was it was that Sienna? I think so, but I don't remember. Yeah. No, that was yeah. Sienna. That was Sienna. You were there. Okay, and uh, what happened there was there were some sanctified holy wafers, the communion wafer, and they were stolen. And it was a great scandal because these are you know this is the transmuted form of Jesus Christ and somebody had stolen them, what would become of them? It was a great sacrilege. So the whole town, this is how the story is told, the whole town prayed 
and then something miraculous happened uh, the details escape me at the moment and and then there's been this miracle ever since in regard to these wafers that they were discovered or something like that that none of that is important and I obviously wasn't important to me either because I've forgotten it all but the whole point was that they were stolen the quote whole town prayed and then a miracle happened Swami said very quietly there must have been a saint praying because he said you know all the prayers of people who don't pray very powerfully don't really add up to one good prayer <laughs> you know it's not quantity because everybody can be praying but if they're praying restlessly without real divine power they're not going to draw divine force but one saint one saint praying who could really draw the power in uh, could create the miraculous occurrence for all the others so um, in the context of Lahiri and in the context of being disciples what I was trying to say was just that it doesn't take a lot it just takes a few who really have that connection that can create a whole new reality it's also important because as we ourselves work doing our little job to establish self-realization in the West you know whatever role we each play in this little project we also have to think in a divine and not in a worldly way and so the whole life of Lahiri Mahashaya put forward as this sort of beginning point from which the whole river flows the humility of it and the simplicity of it and the lack of, of street smarts you know is also it's a very it's a very important lesson now when Yogananda came to America he didn't follow Lahiri's model exactly he advertised for example and it was controversial when Yogananda advertised it wasn't like considered to be oh just an obvious thing you come to America you advertise he had to defend it he had to defend it even to Sri Yukteswar he had to defend it to the orthodox one in India who thought he was cheapening these teachings you know and selling out in some way there was rumors in India that Yogananda had gone to the west and just had fallen because of the way he was behaving I mean, you know, SRF, bless their hearts, just sanitizes everything so you don't have any idea what really happened. And, you don't, and therefore, you don't have any true picture of how you should behave. And when things happen to, to you, to us, we think there's something wrong because we don't recognize what it was like, what it was really like because, oh, gee, we don't want him to think that Yogananda had to struggle. We don't want to think that there was misunderstanding between himself and Sri Yukteswar. You know, we don't want any of those things. We don't want to pre so we just pretend none of that happened. But as a result, the master gets sort of more and more flat, right? But he was quite controversial. He did miracles in public. That was very controversial. And he advertised, and he would say, if Wrigley can advertise his chewing gum, that's what he would say. He said, I can give people, I can advertise good ideas for people to chew on. <laughs> and that was his rationale because he thought well why not everything in America is advertised they're advertising all this trivial useless stuff I can advertise something that will really help them why not but there were but but Lahiri Mahashaya never even made an organization how you know how can you do this like this I mean Yogananda had the right he was an avatar to do whatever he wanted but what Yogananda also set an example as distinct from Lahiri so Lahiri's life is important is that Yogananda looked at the time and place and did what was appropriate you know in our controversy with SRF I realize there's a kind of a piece that I haven't made clear in some of the stuff I've written and I haven't 
had the will yet to make it clear, but I hope that I will, which is that we accuse SRF of changing Yogananda's teachings. And then they, SRF accuses Ananda of changing things. The Festival of Light, for example, there's no such thing. Yogananda never had a Festival of Light. We wrote that. You know, Swami wrote that. We do lots and lots of things that Yogananda never did. Okay? So it's not changing the teachings per se, because when you actually look at it, Yogananda had extraordinary creativity. You know, he was far from just bringing the teaching from India as Lahirian through Keshwar had taught it and just putting it in front of us. He modified Kriya. He modified the way Kriya was presented. He changed certain aspects of it. He added the energization exercises. I mean, he, um, and he wrote all the poetry and he created scientific healing affirmations and he did all this business with physical healing and things like that. I mean, he did lots of things that the masters in India had not done. So what he showed us was the creative potential of this teaching. And when he told Kriyananda that he wanted Kriyananda to write, Kriyananda answered back, but sir, what else is there to write? Because as a young man, Kriyananda looked at it and told, but sir, you've done everything. And then Yogananda said, don't speak like that. Much remains to be said. And it was just like, it was just the beginning. So it's not a question of whether or not you have to parrot what was there. And in fact, even it's not more true to do it exactly the same. And so a lot of times there's people get real intense, like who did this and what did this one do and so on. And it matters, but it, it, it doesn't matter as much as that the spirit be true. So it's not a question of whether it's changed, it's a question of what was changed and why. You know, in fact, I would feel perfectly comfortable if SRF stood up and said, we decided to put Krishna on the altar because we think it's a good idea for these reasons. Instead of saying, Master said this is what we're supposed to do, he just kept it secret from everyone. Because that's not Master's spirit. But for, for the disciple to say, I feel inspired and this is what I think I ought to do, even to be wrong, is I, to me more true than to sort of feel that you have to justify everything by authority. Justify it by intuition and be wrong. Instead of justifying it by authority so that you'll appear to be right. Do you see the difference? So Sri Keshwar's, I mean, uh, Lahiri's life, um, we have this wonderful story of him, you know, just helping his boss when his, when his, his supervisor's wife in England. It's, so, it's also a very significant story here, even though it, it's lost a little bit on us. The fact that Lahiri Mahashai was recognized as a saint by his English boss because the, you know, the Indians were not well respected at all by the British. And uh, for, for, his, for Lahiri to win the respect of the man who was his, the white man who was his superior, that's how they refer to us in India, is white. <laughs> to, to win the respect of the white man. And also, Master takes the trouble to show in many ways the extraordinary universal spirit of Lahiri. You know, that he himself also extended himself out I mean, Master tells us in here that most of the miracles of Lahiri he's not telling us. But he tells us this long story having to do with Lahiri reaching out to his, the British man who was his superior in the office in the government there. And there's a real lesson in it. You know, just Master really wants us to get this lesson and, you know, the way times are developing, we may get a real chance to get it of uh, the universality of all nations. 
united in the spirit. And so he starts with Lahiri Mahashaya, who started this whole thing. One of the first stories he tells here is his relationship to this Englishman. And then how the, the woman comes from England. You're the one I saw in the light. And this is really quite extreme. Not to our minds, because we're Americans, but in the context, very much so. And he even refers there how Lahiri had all this courage as a high caste Brahmin that he was willing to deal with all of the, the, the Muslims and the others. He was, he was very much breaking with tradition. So Master doesn't bother to emphasize whether that was controversial and whether, whether there was any backlash, but the mere fact that he said he had the courage to do it implies that. So again, you read between the lines. This is what a Master's life is like. If it took courage to do it, that meant there was opposition to his doing it. But that he had the force of will in his own quiet, determined way to just ignore these things and go forward as he knew it meant to be. Well, let's take, let's take a couple of minutes. Let's take a 10-minute break and then we'll go back and go on with this. Um, any comments or questions before I go on? Yes. I remember reading about Mercury making comments not his comments on the Right. It's not in English, it's been Bengali. I have not, you would think somebody would have translated them by now, but I've never heard of them. Has anybody else heard of them? The, you, uh, why hasn't anyone translated Lahiri's comments on the Bhagavad Gita into English? I just, but I haven't heard. Maybe so, it seems like they ought to. Yeah. Also, it depends, unfortunately, on who translates it, whether or not it's still inspired or not. So, but eventually. You know, it's just time, piece by piece, these things become available. Going from language to language is tricky. Yeah. That's what they say in, in Italian, to translate is to betray. <laughs> That's what Swami often speaks about when he talked about why he had to learn to speak Italian himself rather than be translated when he spoke. Okay. Of course there is. There has to be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Christianity is a true religion. He must have taught them self-realization. You just sort of work backwards. Jesus was an avatar. An avatar comes to liberate others. There's only one way to be liberated. You have to reverse the energy. You have to do, do yoga. I mean, St. Teresa of Avila did yoga, I mean, yogic practices. She just didn't call them that. I mean, her books are just the same. Because once you get there, there's only one way to go. The, uh, uh, the way of a pilgrim. That's the one I was trying to think of exactly. Is that was, if you haven't ever read that, it's also a, a, an anonymous book from a Russian peasant devotee. It's a thrilling book. So it's from the uh, ortho, the uh, Greek, the Russian Orthodox side of Christianity, but it's the same thing. It's just, but you see, direct communion and institutional religion don't work together, because if you have direct communion, you don't need the institution, and that's why institutional religions. That's why the Christian, the early Christian Church, suppressed the Gnostics, because the Gnostics said, I mean, that's the, uh, forgive me, that's the battle between us and SRF. We're saying that no institution is required. Every direct disciple has an equal right to receive, interpret, and express his guru's teaching. And we don't need any board of directors to say what it is and isn't and whether or not we're authorized 
which have an absolute right to do it. And it's just obvious that we do, to us. But it isn't obvious to them. To them it's to the institution, whether it's Christian or self-realization. They have this thought that we're the authorized ones. We're the ones who understand it. We're the ones who know how the Master should do it. And if we just let anybody do it, it's just going to, I mean, who knows what they're going to teach. And that was just, I mean, the Catholics burned people at the stake for heresy. I mean, it was no small matter. You know, it's a very, it's a pleasure to be dragged into court. We used to be dragged to the, the faggots, to the woodpile. You know, this is no problem compared to that. Every time we leave the courtroom, that's what we say to each other. Well, at least we can go home and sleep in our own bed, you know. I mean, that's a big step up. But it's very, very threatening to an institution to have a whole lot of people running out there with direct revelation. And, and meditation is just that. Just, it just kills the system. But now, because the institutions are dying, the com uh, communion's coming back. Re inner communion, direct communion, is coming back. But uh, don't bank on it being a, an easy ride. I don't think the, the Christian scene is going to go down quietly into the night and just happily sell one after another of their churches to us, you know. It's not going to happen like that. There's a lot of entrenched power and, and institutional ego there, which leads to fanaticism. And, uh, you know, they just, we'll be the devil, we'll be the devil to a lot of people. It took, it took Christianity 300 years. We're just, not, we're just not strong enough yet to be persecuted by the mainstream. The only people who know we're here are other people like us. But there'll come a time when we'll be a threat to the real power that be, which is the institutional religions around us. We're no threat now. But we will be. I mean, I sit in the uh, Palo Alto Ministers Association, which is a very nice group of people. I have a lot of respect for them. They all do very good work. But, you know, I just, I have so many contradictory things to say. I just am not going to say them. But I just, I don't read the Bible the way they read the Bible, most of them. And not my place to say it and I don't want to but I, I you know it would be very disturbing for me to assert a lot of what I believe and we're all being very ecumenical so we don't nobody talks we just agree we don't even pray we're just silent together sometimes people pray every once in a while but very carefully but it's very it's very appropriate it's very good it's a big step forward and we talk about our tradition and your tradition I love that. It's my favorite part. Okay. Anything else? I love, one of my friends who's an Episcopal priest in Seattle, he, he used to be a parish priest. He's not there anymore. When I went to visit once, he was a parish, Episcopal parish priest who was part of an ecumenical group of Jews and Christians who were sort of like trying to bridge the gap between Judaism and Christianity. And since I was born Jewish, and I'm now a, a, a Christian Hindu yogi, and he's an Episcopal priest. He just had to take me to the meeting. He just couldn't, he couldn't stand it if I didn't come. And uh, at that time, the Jews were in charge for those particular sessions, and they were trying to help the Christians understand the Jewish experience by studying the Holocaust, because it's very important for Jews for other people to understand what it feels like to be a Jew and being persecuted is a huge part of what it feels like to be a Jew. So we were reading, uh, they, there was some material to read in advance, and this rabbi, there were several things to read, and the, this one rabbi had written, 
that the uh, the years of persecution under the Nazis was the was the shining hour of the Jewish people because everything was taken away from us and we had the opportunity to prove our teachings that nothing but God is real and it was the most wonderful thing that happened to the Jewish people because we really got to prove the power of our faith in that hour now I mean I, I read that that was so fantastic so I went to this discussion group I couldn't get anybody to pay attention to that paragraph you know I made a little bit of an effort to get people to relate to that one and I, I mean even the people who recommended it I, they couldn't nobody could get it we just had to go right over it and go to the more sociological stuff but you know everybody has a piece of the truth and that was just some real enlightened man who really had looked at it and saw it for what it was and that's you know there's there's levels in every faith there's the people who use it to really go to God and then there's there's people who hang around to have a good life it's very good it's a much better life than many lives but it's always just a few that's what we were talking about with Lahiri here it's just a few but a few true ones are enough okay any other questions comments or thoughts you know um Corey asked me during the break a question that it was just her question, but I think it's a very good question. She was essentially asking me, what, was the, what is the relationship between what Master taught in Hinduism and the deities and all of the systems that are there? Because we refer to Lahiri Mahashaya being a high caste Brahmin and that being a real part of his life probably in some way or another. And I was saying to her, and this is important to remember, that Yogananda took the essence of India, the same as he took the essence of, of the West. And I didn't realize till I went to India and saw what Hinduism looks like, how non-Hindu yoga, Yogananda's teachings really are. And I've often said to people, he's just about as much of a Hindu as he is a Catholic. Which is, you can go to a Catholic church and you can kind of get what they're doing in Catholicism because of what you know about self-realization. And when you go to India and sort of see all the Hindu scene, you can kind of get what they're doing because of what you know about self-realization. But you don't really see in, in the self-realization teaching, it doesn't look like Hinduism. And it doesn't look like Catholicism either. Um, the Hindus are a little more um, attuned to it because the Indian tradition encompasses the science of yoga. What Yogananda taught is the science of self-realization, which is, by, and he says that in this book, a yogi is someone who follows a specific method to God-realization. And he taught us the specific method to God-realization. It, it takes me right into um, something that I just really thought, thought was amazing in this chapter. Um, he said, he's just, this is uh, toward the end of the chapter when he's uh, talking about um, his grandson writing a booklet on Kriya of Lahiri's ideas. This is Ananda Mohan Lahiri. And he says, we know that man is usually helpless against the insurgent sway of evil passions. I mean, it's just such a... Uh, one thing about yoga is that it's so sympathetic. Instead of being judgmental or trying to make us feel guilty, and that's where institutional religion tends to try to, to mold you by guilt. True self-realization is always trying to... to lift you by forgiveness you know I, I epitomized once the greatness of, of Swami Kriyananda as a leader 
is no matter what you've done, no matter what failing you bring to him, he always can help you figure out how to go forward from here. And he can always just give you some suggestion that enables you to keep going forward. It's just, it's just so simple, because then no matter what happens, you just sort of say, okay, now what? The children used to have a system they would call bummers into blessings. You know? <laughs> and we, everybody adopted it. You just turn your bummers into blessings. Because whatever takes place, you're never lost. You're never lost. You're never, you never cease to be divine. There's no such thing as damnation. There's no end to it. This is the great advantage of reincarnation. Rather than it being a shortcoming, it's, well, sooner or later you're going to straighten it out. You know, and Sri Yukteswar just says, the past lives of all men are dark with many shames. Well, so welcome to the club. You know? So he says that man is usually helpless against the insurgent sway of evil passions. But these are rendered powerless and man finds no motive in their indulgence. Now that's a very interesting phrase. In other words, there's no reason to go there. You know, we're usually helpless in the face of all these evil passions, and evil passions is sort of a dramatic word. But what he just means is all of the thoughts and feelings that draw us out of our attunement with God. These are the evil passions. You know, fear, anger, lust, jealousy, laziness, um, judgment of others, uh, self-condemnation, guilt, everything. Just name them. Those are all the evil passions. And we're usually sort of helpless in the face of them, aren't we? The, just the, these thoughts come, somebody does something. I often have told the story of just being, when David and I were traveling in the motorhome, and I was in the back of the motorhome making a peanut butter sandwich with this peanut butter jar on the counter, and David was driving. And later on I found out that he actually was at fault. But all that actually happened is we were going on a curvy road and it turned out that he had spaced out a little and had to put the car back on the right side really fast. But all that happened to me in the back is that we were driving along and I was making this sandwich and all of a sudden he made a sharp turn. The peanut butter jar rolled off the counter and hit me right in the foot. Okay? Not a big deal, you know? It didn't even spill the peanut butter, it just landed on my foot and it hurt. My instant reaction was to be mad at someone. And it was just like, all that happened, it's, a, it's an inanimate object and it hit my foot and my foot is bruised. Now what will it serve for me to be mad at someone? But that was the first thing I wanted to do. I, I suffered, I wanted to hit something back. Now isn't that stupid? But that was really how I felt. And I told David about it later and I talked about it. I was le on, we were on a lecture tour and I used it in my classes over and over. And a long time later, David told me he actually was at fault. <laughs> Because, of course, it was him I wanted to hit, you know. But I, mean, I was, at the time, I just thought, well, it was just a curve in the road and the peanut butter jar rolled off. What can you say? We are in a traveling vehicle and I am making it back here. But it was so incredibly clear to me because it's, it's not, often it's not that clear. It's, you know, you feel really justified. Your situation is really complicated, but really all that's happened is you hurt and your goal is to hurt somebody else. They have a trendy phrase for it, passing the experience down the line, right? Passing on the experience. But that's what he's saying here. Those are the evil passions. But then he says, there's no motive for indulging them. And indulgence, again, is the right word. Because we're indulging our ego's desire to, to separate itself 
you know, the pleasure of, of being a separate ego and, and pointing a finger at the world. But there's no motive for it. I mean, the reason we do it is because we think we're going to feel better. The, you know, the peanut butter jar hit my foot. I'm enough of a philosopher to realize that it's really going to hurt no matter who I yell at, right? And if I, and of course, I wasn't stupid enough to make a fight with my husband for driving in such a way that the peanut butter jar rolled on my foot. But really, people would. And it, it, at various stages in my life previously, there would have been a motive. And the motive would have been just, I felt like it. Right? But then he says, there's no motive for their indulgence when there dawns on him a consciousness of superior and lasting bliss through Kriya. In other words, we have an, ex- an inner experience of real joy, at a superior and lasting. It feels better to be in the spine and through Kriya Yoga to reverse the flow of energy up to the spiritual eye than it does to just dissipate it out in, this, in these evil passions. It's just the whole spiritual path, it's just right there. You don't need anything else. You don't need any doctrines, you don't need any rituals, you need nothing. You just have the experience of a superior kind of bliss through Kriya and then you just don't have any motive to do anything else. Perfect. Amazing. And that's why Babaji said to Lahiri, give it freely to all who ask. Because just give them, give them Kriya. And of course you have to give them Kriya in such a way they can do it, which is why we don't publish it in a book, because a little bit of understanding is required, or else you have Kriya and you don't really have Kriya. And it hurts you to have it because you think you have Kriya, but you don't because you can't do it. And then you say, well, I tried it, it doesn't work what Yogananda said isn't true. It has to be given to you in a way that you can do it. But if you can do it, then everything settles itself. You know, that's why in these last uh, two weeks when we've been talking about, you know, all the chaos reigning on the planet and that may get worse, is that we have a real job to do and that's to do our Kriyas and to share the fruit of that and to inspire others to take Kriya. Because the more people take Kriya, there will be no motive to indulge in these evil passions, right? And just a few people like that become a huge force on the planet, a huge force. I mean, Jesus had almost no disciples, a handful of them, and they changed the course of history. You know, Yogananda had just a few disciples, and he says his life too will change the course of history. The Hiri Mahashaya had, he had many disciples, but he had no, nothing going on. He just taught them to do Kriya. He just said, keep doing it. And that's why also Lahiri says, you know, no matter what happens, just keep doing Kriya. Because if you can find no motive to indulge your evil passions, because you have a superior experience of Kriya, then there you are. Beginning and end of story. Everything else is unnecessary. It's just so absolutely amazing. So when Babaji brought, allowed Kriya to be brought down out of the mountains by Lahiri. Lahiri set in motion this absolute revolution. And we're, we're part of that. We're just sitting here, going home at night, getting up in the morning and doing our little Kriyas in our little rooms. And I say that that way sort of, you know, because they're not little. Our rooms may be small, but our Kriyas are infinite. You know, doing this practice, which is making us into a whole new species. And, and just think what the, what the fruit of that will be. Because it won't be a matter of people restraining themselves or policing one another. Although, 
as I've said many times on this planet, it's still required. But it's just people liberating themselves from the mere impulse. Anyway, I love that. So, well, I think that, oh, this is the other one I loved. Our eagerness for worldly activity kills in us the sense of spiritual awe. Isn't that? We cannot comprehend the great life behind all names and forms the second. Just because science brings home to us the second, familiarity has bred a contempt for her ultimate secrets. Our, one, our relation with nature is one of practical business. <laughs> In other words, um, our eagerness for worldly activity, I read that a little differently, which I like better, I mean it's more relevant, was just our, um, our preoccupation with externals. And that's what he's writing here. And our, our eagerness for worldly activity is also our desire to dominate the world. And that's, this, is a, this is Western culture. You know, Western culture is interested in natural law only insofar as we can use it in one way or another. And not in, in order to merely appreciate, although the greatest of all always appreciate. But what Master, Master decided to use that um, side to launch the science of Kriya Yoga because he felt that Master's pra- uh, the West's practical interest in how things work and what the effect of that will be on our lives made us the ideal candidates for Kriya. <laughs> and that's what he said. Americans long for a simple practical technique so that they can be as practical and as individual in their religion as they are in everything else they do. And that was why it came to us. Okay, that's my story for tonight. If there's no questions. Okay. Thank you.